And this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome. This is a show about books and stories. I'm broadcasting to you live from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Today, we've got a pretty big one coming up for you, actually. I think if I had to come up with a theme for today's show, it's like uh, muscular authors who are kind of, who are doing exciting, exciting new things with writing. Uh, Our first guest today is going to be Joel Dean. He has got a brand new novella out. It's called Judas Boys. and the other guest, the other guest is a big one. Um, it's Poetry Month. It's always Poetry Month on this show, but August nationally is Poetry Month, brought to us for the third year in a row uh, by the wonderful Red Room Poetry, the national sort of poetic organisation of the country. And they've put out this fantastic new book. It's a 20-year anthology of their work and their collection. It's called A Line in the Sand, and it features a couple of fantastic previously unpublished poems from a giant of Australian poetry, Dorothy Porter. Uh, Dorothy Porter has since passed away. Her partner, Andrea Goldsmith, a fantastic writer in her own right, will be joining us on the show to talk to us about Dorothy's poetic legacy and to read a couple of those fantastic poems to us. Um, It's going to be huge. I can't wait. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. My name is Mel Fulton. You are listening to Literati Glitterati on Triple R and it is time for me to introduce my first guest, Joel Dean. Joel is a poet, a novelist, a journalist and a speechwriter. His latest novella, out now through Hunter Books, is called Judas Boys and it asks some pretty damning questions about whether or not someone can ever run away from their past. Joel Dean, welcome to Literati Glitterati. Thanks for having me, Mel. Oh, it's an absolute delight. Um, Let's start by talking about your lead character, Pinnock. I feel like you've created one of the all-time great slappable fuckboys in <laughs> Pinnock. And I want to know all about how, you know, the genesis of this character and why characters like this sort of bear interrogation. Tell us. That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, Pinnock is a bloke of a similar vintage to me. So he's a Catholic schoolboy who went into politics, worked in politics and... Um, has made a bunch of bad choices. And when I initially started out, I was thinking, oh, you know, almost like an alternative me. If I'd, if someone had taken a left turn ever, every time I'd taken a left turn, but very quickly he went beyond that and became took on a life of his own. And he, it's just one of those fascinating things about when you create a character and when they start doing stuff and surprise you, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's when I think, okay, we're, we're, we're up and running here. And he's one of those characters where I started out just with a... I guess an intellectual sort of exercise. What you know? What if I was a complete and utter asshole in this regard? Um, excuse my French. And, um, and but it just went far beyond that. He's not like me at all. No, he's he's a really interesting character. Um, the book the book begins. Uh, the opening scene in the book is we're at a funeral for one of his schoolmates, and he has this interesting exchange with the schoolmate's mother. And then the rest of the story is told, uh, sort of alternating between a time that I'm imagining is about 2019. There's references mm. to bushfires and things like that, and then that flashes back to his days at St Jude's at this sort of elite private school where he's got a 
scholarship to be a diver. He's a working class boy. Yep. Um, and he's sort of trying to negotiate, you know, the the power and privilege of those schools. Yes. Um, in the present day, in 2019... He's he's a disgrace. He's fallen from grace. He's in the nude. He's he's been sort <laughs> he, of rescued by his ex-wife. I think disgrace has been kind to him. He's an he's a shocker, an absolute shocker, would be my view. So yeah. where did you start writing the book? Do you start there? Like, what was the kind of you we, know the genesis? Yeah. Well, the the genesis. I mean, it started. I'll go back a little way. Yeah. Um, it started um, with grief. You know, my father died. A good friend of mine, Michael Gurr, who's a wonderful writer, not at all like Pin, he died. And out of grief and guilt about people that I'd lost, I started just ruminating in this character. And then I, st- and then I started writing. Usually I start writing when I'm upset. Mm. And so I started trying to figure it out. And then it sort of triggered a short story, which this, this Saturday paper published last year. And then I just jumped into this book. And so it sort of came out of grief and guilt. And the guilt, I think, is shot through it. Mm. Um, but it, it came out of a feeling. And I, look, I'm a very, um, I'm a big sook. And I, a lot of my stuff comes out of feeling. And it was, and it was really out of this, um, it's a very emotional book. It was to, at least to write it. And um, so it came, it came out of, out of that and trying to figure out what I was upset about. And what I was upset about is, among other things, wh- how our society really, um, uh, how men, how men are screwed up and how men screw up and how and how the uh, the pressure to be a bloke um, mm. a lot of a lot of men just really don't get it it's crippling and I, I think that I think that at the heart of the book for me um, you know and you do sense that overwhelming feeling of guilt and of shame as well and I think that at various points in all of our lives we ask that question of like what would happen if we just ran like what would happen? if we didn't face up to the things that made us feel ashamed and we didn't take ownership of them and we just kept moving. And mm. in Pinnock's case, nothing really very good comes of it. No, and this is the thing, and, and I, you know, and again, without, you know, talking about sort of people, you know, like my dad or anything, but this happens in your life. Mm. You can't run away. Sooner or later it comes back and bites you and you can't get away from it. And and I think that that's, like, this is a, a it's a, this is a, book about men having behaved badly but it's not just a male book there's a lot of female characters in there and in some respects you know I use them a lot because this is written in Pin's voice mm. and the the um you know this the women there and you know and again not not um, not based on women I know but based on some of the things that women have told me um they're shining a pretty harsh light back at these blokes as well and it's so it's, it's a very it's it's I think yeah one of one of an early reviewer called it sort of like a, a domestic noir and I guess it is I thought oh that's a that's a nice way to put it but look it's the truth is I mean the thing is is that you know, you've got um, you're talking about Dorothy Porter later later on and I remember reading The Monkey's Mask when it came out in '94 and that was an incredibly intense read dragged me through it mm-hmm. and then I had to go back and I was like how the hell did she do that and then I had to go back and read it again and again and again. I was a, started as a poet, mm. so that's and so that's what I want for my books. That's what I want for Judas Boys. I want it to be a really intense, r- short read that drags people through, and 
there's a lot of stuff in there that I hope will, will reward repeat reads. I mean, we were talking off air about books like music, you know, mm. and, and I think of them in that way. Like I want, you know, a good book is something that goes back to when you read it again and again and again and as you change, it changes too. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, you've set yourself some really interesting parameters in anchoring the character in pin and I think some essential ones as well because Mm. we're sort of driven through this very muscular, very lean, kind of quite dynamic book from the perspective of this person who is highly flawed, who is in the wake of kind of catastrophe and who is relying relying on all of these women that he's treated that he's treated badly mm. to liberate him from that. And in that sense, in that sense, it is a feminist book. And I was, I was interested, you know, to talk to you about the challenges of showcasing, you know, a woman's perspective or the kind of carnage that this kind mm. of thing creates by having them reflect him back. Yeah, well, I think it's one of the interesting things. I mean, a lot of authors, there's a real thing about, look, I'm a white middle-aged bloke. Right, so it's not appropriate for me to sort of go out there and start, you know, writing a story. I think me writing a story about from a woman's perspective, or you know, someone from a, you know, a diverse background, or you know, I don't think that really flies. But I do have a. I think that there's a. I can write about these things um, from a, my perspective, but I've got to bring other stuff in, mm. and if I do that, it amplifies it. So that's what I'm. I think that it's a. I think a lot of. I think a lot of. Um, a lot of dumb blokes really complain about not being able to write what they want, and I just think they're lazy. Yeah, and I just think there's no excuse. I think you can write anything you want, just do it properly, mate. You know, don't sook, don't be a sook. <laughs> or at least, you know, if you're feeling broody, start there and interrogate. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. And I loved. I think that you know, to go back to your earlier point about talking about music and and words that hit like music and that sort of lyricism. Um, I love the the way that you've brought in other texts to carry this book along as well. Mm. Like, um, you know, when. Pinnock's ex-wife is listening to Hajira in the kitchen. You're like, okay, cool. I, God, I get, I, love that album. I get where she's at. She's really pissed off. That's my favorite album of That's, all time. I well, love it. As, well, yeah, my 16 year old daughter. You know, I'm in the car with her, and she's like, if you put Joni Mitchell on again, I'm gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Get, I'm sick of getting told off by my 16 year old. But yeah. Yeah, you know, they hold us accountable, I suppose. Totally. I am joined in the studio by Joel Dean, the author of the fantastic book uh, Judas Boys. We're talking about shame and guilt and writing uh, writing a novel that hits like music. Um, can you tell us a bit about who... Um, well, actually, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Do you read while you're writing or is it something, you know... That's a really, really good question. I think it's... it's um Yes and no. Mm. There's some, you know, I, I'm always trying to, I read really widely. I'm reading non-fiction, poetry, fiction. In, and if I'm not reading widely, I write badly. Mm. Um, but sometimes when you're in the, in, especially when you're right in the middle of it, I need to pull back from that because it can have an influence and it's like, oh, I'm just, you know, mir- mimicking Dorothy Porter. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very easy to do if you're reading really good stuff. Mm. You know? So, but, I mean, it's a bit like, I mean, it's a bit like we are what, you are what you eat, you are what you read. If you're mm. reading crap and you're reading badly, and by that I mean just not really soaking it all in, then you write badly, or at least I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book 
you know, it's only been out a week or so, so there haven't been a lot of reviews yet, but early reviews are saying, uh, Mark Robo said it reads a bit like Tobias Wolf, which I absolutely agree with. Someone else said Cheever with a boning knife, which is that pretty was, exciting. Yeah, that was Michael Winkler. That was, that was pretty cool. I actually saw um, Tobias Wolf give a reading once. I used to live in America in Berkeley, and he came in and gave a reading. Yeah, he, two things. He had the best moustache I've ever seen. <laughs> And he was terrifying. <laughs> he was a scary guy. He yeah, was a wow. Scary guy. Yeah. He's got a huge voice. That's mm. all I can really. That's all I can really say about him. A huge writerly voice, and then a huge literal like speaking yes. voice. It's booming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but tell us what. So what were you reading like while you were doing this? Oh goodness. Well, it, it's um, a lot of poetry. Yeah. I read. I mean, poetry is my. It's it's the it's the fountainhead of everything I do. Yeah. And um and so I couldn't say a particular poet. I mean, the thing the thing is, you know, I mentioned Dorothy Porter, and uh, you know, and that's true because she's one of those very important poets to me. Um, you know, I think that um, Sylvia Plath is one I go back to again and again because mm. she was just like a um, she was like a comet, like mm. she was like the sun. And so um, I'm after I, – I read stuff that um, – I'm after an emotional hit. Yeah. I want – I mean, this is one of the things, you know, you need technique and all the rest, but I want some blood and bone in it, mm. right? And so that's what I'm after when I'm reading and that's what I hope I'm delivering when I'm writing. So otherwise – because, you know, writing a book's hard yards and so it takes you away from your partner and your family and the dog gets grumpy and all the rest and so it's got to be worth it. It's got to be, and so yeah. But I'm so I'm not really answering your question. But no, I, no. I, poetry is it. Yeah. When I'm reading. And are you, um, you know, with a poetic background? But you're also a journalist. You're also a speechwriter. You know, yeah. um, what is your editing process like? You know, you're someone who likes something that's pared back, that's pared back, that hits, that's full of blood and bone. Mm. No weasel words. You know, mm. um, what's your editing process like? Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, I worked as an editor for years in America. So, um, I mean, and I, you know, I remember make, making writers cry when I first started. And now I felt like a complete bastard. And um, so, um, I'm in no position to complain. And look, my editor, um, John Hunter, who and I've worked with him now for over four books. Mm. We have a very simpatico relationship, and it's really creative. And we um, we we argue. And we and he doesn't have to worry about hurting my feelings because I'm pretty thick skin. Once I've written it, like I try to be, you know, the biggest sook I can be when I'm writing it, and then I try to be the biggest bastard I can be when I'm editing it. If mm. that makes sense, excuse yeah. my French. No, that totally makes sense. And so at the end of that process, when it comes out into the world, like how do you how do you feel? <laughs> It's a really it's it's sort of um I'll I'll, I'll come say something my wife said to me because you know especially you know, she's like oh another book because you know I've published you know several novels and collections of poetry she's like oh the festival of Joel begins is her take and, <laughs> and she's like and you're gonna get up in front of people and then you're gonna get emotional and it's like because I I do get emotional it's it's um and it takes you back into the moment it really does and one of the things that's that's happened that's changed my writing is about eleven years ago I had a stroke. And that was really, really interesting. And, I, you know, it was, took a, a, quite a while to recover from it. And I'm still, you know, but it changed my writing in that if I was a house, it's like it took all the doors and windows off the house. So I was always, I always sort of felt things pretty, or like, you know, in a, at I thought at a deep level, but I didn't realise 
I just I find it really hard to deal with stuff. Like it really blows through me in a big way. So when I'm so and that affects my writing. I think it's become more emotional. Yeah. And it and it's affects when I'm reading, especially poetry. But I think with this this novel too, it um it mean yeah I get stuff upsets me more. It's just maybe it's also about getting old. I don't know. Well, and it's also a hugely personal book. You know, it sounds like you've you've had skin in the game from the very beginning. You started it with some really big questions about yourself and your family and your father and that drove you through it I imagine the process of then you know making something holding yourself accountable and releasing it into the world would be it's huge yeah it's funny because I mean one of the things about writing is I'm not sure about you but um I usually write to figure stuff out and usually I feel better at the end of the process Mm. and um and so I got to the end of the process of writing Judas Boys and was expecting to feel better and I felt worse, a lot worse, so much worse that I thought I need some help and I actually ended up going, you know, going back and seeing a psychologist again and, and it was, and that really, and, um, you know, yeah, he, they really helped me get, get my act together but it was a really, um, it was cathartic but there was no, there was no sort of, way out of jail at the end which is the first time I've had that so it's a very it's been a very intense book to write Um, yeah yeah wow sorry I'm just I'm just sort of sitting with that and that yeah that the sense of catharsis and then when it doesn't come and the heaviness of some questions and the fact that there are no easy answers I mean what do you um what do you want a reader to take from reading Judas Boys do you have do you have that in mind or um it's a really good question. I'm sort of, yeah, I'm walking. It's one of the things, you know, you finish a book and you walk away from it, you know, and it's sort of there sort of smouldering in the background. You're like, what, you know, trying to make sense of it. Mm. Um, ultimately, I want people to get, I want people to feel. I think we sleepwalk through life. Yeah. And um, and it's over pretty fast. And I think, I think I just want people to, it's, it's like, you know, reading experiences. I remember reading, the, you know, sort of the Brontes when I was a kid. You know, and, that, and, and a bit like reading um, uh, Tony Morrison. Mm-hmm. And these really, and just those sorts of books that at the end, it's not necessarily that I had a thought in my head, but it was just they shook me mm. and made me feel and made me almost feel like I'd taken a few layers of skin off. That's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, this reading, uh, this book is a book that really concerns itself with violence you know it's about sort of violence among men and between men it's about um not necessarily physical violence but the the sort of aggressiveness of um of life sort of under a patriarchy I suppose you know um and I imagine it would be quite a jolting experience to write violence in such in such a way yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's something. Um, you know, I'm going to put it. Right, I'll go back. Look, I was a mm. police reporter when I was a. I started out as a teenage tabloid reporter. As a you know police reporter, and I was eighteen, nineteen. Um, I grew up in a matriarchy. My mum was my mum's house. Um, I'm a big sook. I'm deeply um, troubled and upset by violence, um, but I but it's something that, you know, because and I think because I'm upset about it, I keep sort of like. Coming back to it, I, you know, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to. It's just one of those things that um, disturbs me, and I write and I write about things that disturb me. I guess. 
Yeah, and about trying to process it and I mm. suppose like and trying to process it within that, you know, hotbed of all manner of things. It exists entirely in my imagination, I have to say. I was a, pri- uh, a public school kid. I didn't experience that kind of elite private school environment mm. but just from it's always fascinated me and and hearing you know hearing people talk about their yeah. experience at an all-boys school or being a boarder at an all-boys school is just well, continues to blow my mind yeah well does it mean because I mean like again like Pin, I was a country kid that landed in Melbourne um was you know was living in the top of a shop in North Fitzroy in the early 80s and then I was getting on a train and going to St Kevin's in Turak mm. and um and it was like going to the moon. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, and I still, you know, and I just, it was it was a completely alien experience. And, and obviously that influences Judas Boys. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton and I am joined in the studio by jo- Joel Dean, author of the fantastic book, uh, Judas Boys. Joel and I were just talking off, um, off air. Joel is also a speechwriter. And um, as you know, if you've been listening previously, the book is largely about sort of, um, you know, running from the truth and obscuring the truth. And it's told in this kind of muscular and, and lean and sort of almost musical way. Joel, you're a speechwriter as well as a journalist, as well as a poet, all of these things coming together. Can you tell us about the relationship between all of them? And why writing lean and keeping these sort of weasel words out of the picture are so important to you? Yeah, um, good question, Mel. I mean, poetry informs everything I do. And, you because know, poetry is the first language. It's where story comes from and all the rest. Um, and, you know, I hate political language that just is used to cloud the truth, evade the truth, um, and just you know, where it almost reads like it's been written in by a software program or it's sort of like full of all these um, uh, sort of like uh, dot points like it's a bad rap song. Mm. You know, it's just, it's the enemy of democracy and truth. And I think that what we need to demand of our politicians is just tell it to me straight. Yeah. Tell it to me like you'd tell it to me on the street. Don't bullshit me. I'm so sick of bullshit. And the thing is, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And, you know... It, it infuriates me, and I, you know, so I do teach um, wannabe politicians, and um, you know, I just tell them, you know, tell them the story, past, present, future, give it to them straight, don't bullshit. No, play, be real, tell it like we're running yeah. for a bus, because we all pretty much are all the time, psychically, anyway. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, got yeah. no time for bullshit. No, not at all. Um, that seems like a fantastic note. <laughs> <laughs> to end on, um, Joel Dean, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Um, please do pick up a copy of Judas Boys. It's out now at all good bookshops. Go to an independent one, pick it up from the library. Um, you can also, I'm sure, follow Joel Dean on the socials and Hunter Books as well, which is a good thing to do to keep abreast of any, you know, events and things that are coming up. Triple R. 
on Literati Glitterati on Triple R. Red Room Poetry is Australia's leading organisation for uh, for commissioning, creating, publishing and promoting poetry in meaningful ways. It is also the organisation behind Australia's third annual Poetry Month, which has been celebrated across the country every August since 2020. This year, Red Room Poetry celebrates its 20th birthday with the release of A Line in the Sand, an anniversary anthology that brings together the best in the business, out now through Pantera Press. With an introduction by Ali Cobby Eckerman and works from Bruce Pascoe, Tony Birch, Grace Tame, Maxine Beniba-Clark, it is a formidable read. The book also includes three previously unpublished works from a titan of contemporary Australian poetry, the late Dorothy Porter. And joining us today to talk about Dorothy's work, her poetry, her incredible legacy, is none other than her partner, legendary novelist in her own right, Andrea Goldsmith. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thanks, Mel. It's really good to be here. Ah, we are delighted to have you and very, very excited. Um, that you might be treating us to a reading very shortly. Um, to start us off, can you tell us, you met Dot um, in the early 90s when everything was happening. Can you describe sort of the energy between you two when you first met? Well, initially, I, it wasn't energy. Um, it was on the Victorian women's writers train. And um, I'm, I'm a very private person. Mm. And when we picked Dot and the other interstate writers up from the airport, Dot entered the bus, she looked straight at me and she outed me. She said, oh, you're Andrea Goldsmith, you're Jewish, you're a lesbian and you're Aries. And I thought, (laughs) fuck, who is this person? I must avoid them at all costs, which indeed I did. Wow. Um, Until the first night there was a poetry reading. Um, I should say before that, our publishers had all sent, had sent boxes of books for us to hand out to the people, you know, the, 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 the places where we stopped and taught on the way. But like all writers, we helped ourselves first. Mm. And I assiduously avoided all of Dot's stuff because she was such an idiot um, <laughs> until the first night. Um, Dot was one of the, the readers and she stood up and she read from Akhenaten and, and I just thought, Oh, my God. It was not just the poetry. The poetry was absolutely superb and it really grabbed me, particularly Scarab, one of the poems towards the end, but all of them did, and what a performance she was. So um, I went crawling to her. I mean crawling to her and said, do you happen to have um, an extra copy of Akhenaten because I didn't get one when we were diving into the boxes? And that basically um, was the start. And... Um, when Akhenaten was um, released in a, a new edition by Highland House, um, Dot's copy to me was, um, she wrote in the front of it saying, um, um, here's a lovely copy of the book that made you look at me twice. <laughs> and it's true, it did. Wow, what an incredible mm. introduction. And, you know, we were just talking with Joel Dean about doing away with weasel words completely and about Dot's incredible dynamism as a writer, but, like, the the brutality of being summarised in, in three words, one of them being an Aries, which for some reason I find the most... As Ridiculous. a fellow Aries, I'm like, fuck off, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
<laughs> Which apparently is a classic Aries things thing to do, as mm. you d- no doubt know. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. I do, I do. But it, it, you're right, of the three outings, the Aries just seemed to me to be absolutely <laughs> absurd. But anyway, that was the beginning. <laughs> wow, fantastic. Mm. And then you went on to live, you know, many wonderful years together. You both wrote and generated incredible art, award-winning art. You were both shortlisted for the Miles Franklin in 2003. Um, in both of your work, I feel like music and lyricism and that kind of incredible um, brevity with language, you know, is, is, quite, is quite prevalent. You do a lot with a little. Can you talk to us a bit about the relationship that you and Dorothy have with music and how that informed your work together? It was very different. Mm. Um, um, Dot always wrote to music. She was very responsive to music. And in fact, it was the, it was the, the, the pop music of the 60s and 70s that um, she always said led her to poetry. Um, she also had, um, being a drama queen herself, um, she had a love of opera. Mm. But in terms of um, classical instrumental music, not so much, which is where I come in. Mm. Um, um, so we shared, it was really good actually, we shared our different musical tastes. Um, she learned a lot more about classical music and I'd sort of stopped listening to popular music in about 1972. <laughs> um, um, so, um, you know, my, 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 she increased my knowledge my knowledge there. And we used to do, you know, fun things like dancing in the living room together and those sorts of things. But most importantly, in one of the poems um, in um, A Line in the Sand um, accentuates this, Dot used to always write to poetry, uh, write to music, sorry. And often I could not see the connection between the playlist that she might have used, for example, for El Dorado and the book that came out of it. And it was because both music and poetry get to that deeper level of consciousness. Things go on that you may not be able to actually explain but have a profound effect. She always knew the music she needed to write a particular book. So, I mean, I've, I've, for example, got um, playlists for all of the verse novels that she actually gave me. Oh, my God. Mm. What an incredible uh, legacy. Mm. I would love to dive into those playlists. Um, can you tell us some of, the, some of the records that she was listening to or some of the music that, was her, that were her favourites? Oh, it's really, it was really diverse. Mm. I mean, I mean she, she had a huge collection of, um, you know, rubbishy, rubbishy uh, best songs from the 60s. I love those, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she loved those too. I mean, how many best songs of the 60s can you possibly have? Many, yeah. many. So, I mean, she had those. I mean, she loved the Beatles. And, in fact, um, when she was at school, um, she wrote a, 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 a novel, a short novel, um, about how the, th- that she actually would read at lunchtime to her fellow um, students about the Beatles coming to their school. And, of course, you know, it, all the girls, it was a girls' school. All the girls absolutely loved it um, and she loved the Beatles. And, in fact, she always said that it was listening to... It was one of the very early Beatles songs like um, She Loves Me, Do, or mm. Please Please Me. Um, she was sitting in the car and she heard it and she, she was young, 14. She was very young. Um, and she said, I want to do that. And she did. That's so cool. Mm. And I feel like that is... Um, it, 
I feel like that's so fitting with like a queer origin story as well when all the other girls are like, oh, I love the Beatles. And she's like, I want to be one. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about the poems that are collected in a line in the sand? I will. Yes. So when, when Dot died, um, she left a lot of things, but there was a mountain of paper and over the first few years, I went through the mountains and collected a huge number of previously unpublished poems. Um, I was just astonished that there were so many. And a, lo- a lot of them were very, very old. Mm. Not so the ones in A Line in the Sand. Um, when I knew that Red Room were doing this, this um, anthology, um, I actually offered them three three previously pub, previously unpublished poems and of course they they jumped at it the first two and, and I'm happy to read them um, the first two are really typical dot poems they're about love with a sting in the tail mm. um, it's never easy and if it's easy she wouldn't want it anyway so that's the first two the third poem this was an absolute hoot so I thought I'd Years ago, I thought I'd got all of the unpublished poems and collected them all together. About two years ago, during COVID, I was looking through um, a Milosh book. It's an edited Mm. book by him, not his poetry. And on one of the end pages, the blank pages at the back of the book, I find a a handwritten poem by Dot, untitled. I've titled it Silence. Um... Just there, I mean, it was such a, a surprise, but it was also an absolute, I mean, it was a gift, it really, it really was. So the third of the three poems, Silence, um, I only learned, I only came across it about two years ago. Oh, that's so magic mm. and it's such a lesson in why you should always at the secondhand bookshop or whenever you borrow a book, <laughs> flick through all the pages, shake it out because you never know what delightful treat you're going to find. You are so right. You're so right. Um, Andrea, mm. we would love it if you would read those poems for us. Now, these are three previously unpublished poems from A Line in the Sand, which is the Red Room Poetry fantastic anthology that's just been released through Pantera Press. Okay, so the first one is called Reading Between My Lines. It was written around 1995 and it's very much in the tone of a number of the poems in her collection, Crete. Reading Between My Lines. Please, darling, please, read between my lines. I am a fabulous script. Elephant heads, spear points, sheaves of wheat and strange whatnot. I am all yours. Please, my lovely last chance girl, read between my lines. The second one, Raving, is also from much the same time. Raving. In this new morning, it is love that makes me chatter. Moving, light as a monkey, I'm giving, giving off a hectic joy that could only be love in all its raving generosity. Thank you, my darling, for exploding in my heart. So when you leave me, mute and sober, once and for all, I will remember the talk and coffee and giddy peace of this morning.
and the last poem, which was written in 2002. Silence. It is rare for me to write a poem in absolute silence. No music, no throttling heart. Just faint early birds and a grey early sky. I've given up this serpentine fight. No one won and I'm flooded with peace and gratitude for that. Thank you so much, Andrea Goldsmith. That was just beautiful. Um, I'm very moved, and I'm uh, and I'm also really pleased that we've got a couple of extra minutes so that I can ask you this question. That um, ever since you told us that amazing detail about the poem being hidden in a book has kind of piqued my interest. What state was the poem in? Like when you went through Dot's work. Were they scrawled like ransom notes or were they perfectly organised or how did she, how did she nudge at her process in, in the poems that you found, the unpublished ones? Um, a lot of them um, had appeared in journals. So that, I mean, back in the olden days, there, there were lots of places that you could actually publish poetry. That's mm. all gone now. Um, um, so they were published in magazines, but they had not been put in collections. So, yes, they'd been published, but not fully published as far as I'm concerned because collections are everything. So there was a pile of old magazines that I went through. Um, it was interesting. She was very, very ordered mm. um, when it came to her work. But there was a box, and in the box... She just threw stuff. <laughs> and it was in the I'm going to throw in you box mm. that um, I found so many poems. I've got enough for a very large collection. I simply cannot wait for it to be published um, and I am absolutely not the only one. Andrea, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time to talk about Dorothy Porter's incredible legacy. Andrea Goldsmith is in the studio with me right now. She's sharing work from Dorothy Porter's um, previously unpublished archives uh, from the book A Line in the Sand, which is from Red Room Poetry's 20th anniversary collection. Andrea will also be doing a reading of Dot Porter's work tomorrow night at the Wheeler Centre as a part of the Victorian Poetry Gala of 2023. If you'd like any more information or if you'd like to get yourself a ticket, which you absolutely should, please visit the Wheeler Centre's website. Uh, my name is Mel Fulton. This has been Literati Glitterati. Thank you so much to Andrea Goldsmith. Thank you also very much to Joel Dean, my earlier guest on the show. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.